All right, good evening, everybody. If you'll turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, that's where we'll be tonight, Philippians 2. And we'll pray and we'll, uh, we'll dig in. Lord, we thank you for the worship, the songs that we've sung so far, and kind of getting our hearts uh, in that right place to where we can receive your word. Um, we thank you for all you've done for us as we go over in this chapter some of the wonderful um, things that we receive from you, some of the, the blessings that we receive from you. It fills us up, and then it helps us to see this world a little better, more correctly, a little more a little more clear, and then help us to respond as we should respond. And uh, I know that's Paul's heart here in this letter. There it goes. That these two uh, women, especially at the end of, at the beginning of chapter 4, would, uh, would have unity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to do it like this. I'll... I will fix what we do to this thing. I probably tightened it one too many times. Thank you. That's going to fall apart. There. Perfect. All right. Paul writes this letter for two reasons to this church. The first reason is to thank him for a gift, but the second reason is to bring some unity into a situation in the fellowship. So as much as Paul starts off with, I love you guys, this is great, and we, we read that, and some of our most quoted passages, I think, are from this book to the Philippians, this little letter to the Philippians. Um, he is trying to bring up the humility level in this church. Because there's a, there's a controversy going on between two women, and it's to the point now where it's going to, it's going to ruin the fellowship. It isn't just going to cause a division between these two ladies. It's to the point now where Paul feels it necessary from prison in Rome to write him a letter to say, if you guys continue on this path, you're going to blow up the church. It's going to be divided. It's going to disappear. And so he's trying to appeal um, to the whole congregation, because this is the first, I think, lesson for tonight. The easiest people to be humble around are humble people. I think we all know that. Um, my wife keeps a very calm house. She's very humble. She's very beautiful. She's very lovely in her ability to teach the kids and to train up the kids. And then I can come home sometimes, and I like to stir the pot sometimes is all. If I come in with bravado, pride, uh, snarky comments, my kids respond to that. And they begin to do the same thing back. Dad's home. Now it's time for some jabs, you know, kind of thing. Which doesn't always work out well. Um, I usually have to bring it back down again. But if I show up with humility and calmness, my kids respond that way. They respond in humility. When Paul writes this letter to this church, because at the beginning of chapter 4, he's going to name the names He's very kind in beginning one, two, and three to bring the humility level, and I want to bring it up because it's, we want the humility level to rise, but he's trying to push the pride down across the board so that when these women are called out in chapter four, they can easily, in that environment, be humble because everybody's in that place. It's very easy to say you're sorry when the other person is as willing to say they're sorry at the exact same time. It's much harder not knowing how they're going to respond, to walk up to somebody and say, hey, I just wanted to let you know, without saying, I'm going to be the bigger person here. You know, I want to be humble and come to you and say, I'm really sorry for what I've done, knowing that there's tears in their eyes, and I'm so sorry too. Isn't that easy? And don't you feel relieved and the pressure's off and everybody just is, they melt like they're supposed to. And so Paul is trying to bring that level in the church of humility up, up, up. You know, I read a book, Jenny actually suggested I read it before I moved into this new career that I have, not pastoring, but another career. It's called The Go-Giver. 
And it's not exactly the most spiritual book in the world, but it is a, a very good book. And the idea behind it, and I'll just give you the nutshell, is uh, when, when, you, when, you, when you raise up the level of water, all the ships rise, is the idea. Quit trying to compete and be the best and try to, it's not a war. You don't want to shoot torpedoes at everybody so the only, you're the only ship in the bay. You want to raise the level of water up so that all the ships rise, and that's always best. That's kind of the idea here with Paul. He's raising up the humility level so high that it's going to be easy for these two women to reconcile. It's hard work to reconcile with somebody. It isn't easy. I, I sometimes, and I've dealt with this in the past, I'm just waiting for that magical God dust to fall on me to where it's easy for me to reconcile with this person that I cannot get out of my mind because they just grate on me, you know. And I'm just waiting. God will have to do a work. Well, he has done the work. He showed me my heart. Now the rest of the work is mine. I need to consciously make a decision to humble myself before the Lord and before this person and make it right. And that's hard, you know. I'm not, I know it is. I've, I've failed at it too many times to not know. So I appreciate Paul. The reason this is such a loving letter, such a beautiful letter, such a a letter from prison to a church that's free, because Paul is exemplifying the humility. If anybody should be writing anybody any letters, it should be everybody else to Paul, you know. But he's the one lifting people up from a place of, well, he's in a pit, you see. So verse 1 of chapter 2 Therefore, we're already going to pause. Remember last week, he discussed how some were preaching Christ from envy and strife and trying to make it more difficult for Paul. Seeing Paul in prison, thought this was their chance to get ahead in the ministry game. And he says, I don't care as long as they're preaching the truth, as long as it's sound doctrine, I don't care. Therefore, since... We don't want to do anything from selfish ambition since we don't want to do anything because we're trying to get ahead. If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Raise the tide is the idea. The word if there is a funny word, we would use it maybe in this context so you understand. Not if you've ever experienced this. No, it's more like, hey, honey, I'm going to the store. Do you need anything? We have that conversation a lot, Jenny and I do. Hey, I'm in Maryville. I'm in high V. What do you need? And her response is, well, if you're at the store already, will you get me this? She doesn't mean if you're planning to go. She knows I'm already there. She means since. Since you're there, would you pick this up? That's what Paul means by this. Since there's comfort of love from Christ, from Jesus, since there's a fellowship of the Spirit in him, since there's affection and mercy that we've received from him, Would you fulfill my joy by being like that? Having that mind of Christ in you. He's already given us the great example of what it looks like to humble himself. And he's going to talk a little bit more about that in this chapter. Jesus humbling himself from heaven to earth. But since we've experienced all this, would you fulfill my joy by being like-minded? Having the same love that Christ has for us. Having the same kind of mercy that Christ has for us and so on. Be of one accord, of one mind. Don't be divided. Don't be separate. Don't be distant from one another. Don't let anything be done through that selfish ambition or conceit. It's a very dangerous thing to have that slip into a church, into a fellowship. Selfish ambition and conceit um, is nothing but pride. And pride is something that causes us to Well, it's almost like we want to be distant from each other, height-wise, you know. There's this kind of distance from me to you, and then there's distance 
between me and you. And pride tries to do that and bring distance between us. Um, in these situations where there isn't that unity, where there is this competition and conflict in a fellowship, it quenches the Holy Spirit. It just does. Um, the Holy Spirit doesn't work in those environments. He just doesn't. He will work through the individual who's humble. He will work through the individuals of the fellowship, but the fellowship itself usually dries up on the vine and falls apart. And we have that throughout church history. Um, it's very rare that a denomination that was started by a person in the sense that God called a person to do something new, a new work, that that carries on very far. Um, Paul even talk about that in this chapter, how he has nobody to send to these people but Timothy. This is at the end of Paul's ministry. I don't have anybody of like mind and like heart that will sincerely care for you like I do. That's at the end of his ministry. Now, since then, God has certainly raised up other people to do that. He wasn't the last and only pastor that ever existed, obviously. But it is hard to find someone that can come in and bridge those gaps and have a heart for people in humility. Selfish ambition just really destroys a church. It does. And so he's hoping that they would change and not do this. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, that was the book prior to this. He says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. I want you to walk like this, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring, working. That's in, endeavoring means to work, to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Our default as human beings is sin. It just is. Regardless of what the world will tell us, we're not innately or you know uh, initially good and just need to get back to that core person that we used to be. No, we were born with a sin nature. For us. so our default, what we fall back on is sin. It's to be prideful. It's to be self-centered. It just is. We don't need any help in that area. Look at any infant that's ever been born; they're immediately self-centered. What? You can't say that about babies. I absolutely can. I've had many. I've had six babies. Every one of them wants to be fed when they want to be fed. They want to be burped when they want to be burped. They want someone to take care of them all the time. Of course, they can't do it themselves, but they are not interested in my schedule and my fatigue. It's built in. Care for me. Take care of me. And I find that as an adult... I see people falling into that same trap. Care for me. Take care of me. Burp me. Feed me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Christ changes all of that. It's supposed to anyway. Christ in my heart changes me from not thinking about myself and not wondering why the world isn't taking care of me. But likewise, I look around and I say, what can I do? That's just the wind. This wall, I'm going to stop here. This wall moves about three inches. So we've talked about this before. So when the wind blows, it just shifts a little. And so then the wood just goes. So if you hear that, it's not going to fall apart. It's just moving in the breeze, you know. So now you know why. Now you're all going to listen for it. That's supposed to change. We're supposed to be others-centered. And Paul knows that, and they know that. The Philippians know that. You know, when you first get saved, you do. You just, you do the 180. You have repented. You turn from your sin. You turn from your old ways. But they, if you're not careful, if you're not, if you don't endeavor in your walk with the Lord, you, you fall back into it. You fall back into that, does anybody think of me more than, you know, yeah, or will they think of me more than I think they should? I want them to think of me. Please think of me. And Paul's like, no, I don't want you to be like that. I want you to, to not look out for your own, for your only, your, all your interests, but the interests of others. He's concerned that in this church, as he gets to chapter 4, is that there are actually people rooting for failure. That happens. 
They didn't do what I wanted to do. They didn't do it the way I wanted to do it. I'm going to watch it fall apart. <laughs> then they'll see. These two women were willing to divide and be so divided over things that they were willing to blow up the church just to show how right they were. That's pride. And Paul's trying to nip it quickly before the church explodes. See, the church is still ministering to people. It's, it's still bringing people in. It's still teaching. It's still doing these wonderful works. Now, maybe they didn't get what they thought they were owed or deserved. But to hope that that ministry stops for them to be right is the epitome of pride. It's selfish ambition to the point of destruction. It's a very dangerous thing. It happens all the time. All the time. And so we hear this and we have to do something about it in our lives. We have to be honest. We have to be humble enough to apply this not only to, I hope, you know, hope so-and-so is listening. This is the message I've been waiting for them to hear. I'll be waiting for an apology by my phone tonight. No, <laughs> that's not who's supposed to hear it. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form... Now, so, so you see what he's done here? I've just told you to do the impossible, comfort, love, fellowship. You've experienced all these things from who? Jesus. I want you to do the same thing. Don't be selfish. Esteem others better than yourself. Don't esteem yourself better than them. Uh, let this mind be you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Jesus made a con conscious decision to make himself of no reputation. He did not have to come down here. In fact, in the garden when he's praying, he actually prays, I wish they could have seen me when I was with you. Now that's a paraphrase, but that's, oh, when I was in my glory beside you, Father. He longs for that. He's dreading the cross the next day, that separation from God that he's never experienced before. And he's Going further, you think becoming a man was a jump. Now I'm going to go to the cross and take all of man's sins upon me. That's even a bigger jump. Be separated from God like that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Paul's just trying to bring it into perspective. What he's about to ask these folks to do in chapter 4. Now let's consider Jesus for a minute, you know. He's been with God forever. He's been equal to the Father forever. He, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's been those guys since, the, since well, forever. You know, you can't have put a time on it. And I'm asking you to forgive this one thing, to get over it, to make yourself of no reputation, to not consider yourself higher than the other person. That's all I'm asking, he says, or going to ask. He took the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It's a horrific death. Does anybody remember the movie The Passion? Right? Um, Mel Gibson was the director. It was all in Arabic. It was very well done, I think. Um, as far as that goes, the crucifixion is one of the most difficult scenes you know, to watch visually. Even though you know it's pretend, it's Hollywood, it's still very realistic. In fact, so much so that the actor who played Jesus, when he was being whipped you know, uh, by the guards, the actor who was playing the Roman uh, guard missed the board he was supposed to hit on the back of the actor and caught the actor with the whip. And left a 14-inch scar in his back. He says, it hurt so bad I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk. I know some of you have felt that experience before. You're like, oh. imagine 39 of those lashes. And he just got one, because it's a cat of nine tails, basically. He got one of the, not all nine, just one of them caught him. Took his breath away. We think about this. He humbled himself to become a man. He was perfect with the Lord in a sinless environment. <laughs> Nothing but good. No, I, we've never known anything but this, have we? 
We've known only sin. We've, only, we've known only this world. And, and, and the world will tell us there's a, we, got, we, can, we can make it better. It's, <laughs> you, you can't. You don't understand the gap you're trying to bridge. It's like, it's like spraying Febreze on the cesspool, you know. It's, it's not going to work. He came from this beautiful, perfect environment, which one day we'll experience, and we're going to look back and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe how petty I was down there. How concerned I was for every tiny little infraction against me compared to what we, you were looking at this whole time, God. What a, what a tremendous bog of minutiae. You know, I did good there. And so Paul's just trying to put their little argument, their little squabble in the church that's about to explode the church into some perspective. Would you just have this mind in Christ in this one matter even? Would you just forgive each other like he forgave you? Would you just be merciful like he was merciful to you? Would you make yourself of no reputation in this one thing? I guess I can, you know. Hmm. This is a convicting book. As beautiful as Philippians is, and as much as I love this book, and, you know, it's got all this happiness and joy, and Paul thinks about them all the time, and I love that part of it. There's, there's some shaming going on here in a subtle way and not so subtle way. You don't teach this stuff unless that crowd needs to hear it. These aren't the things you say to someone who's humble. These aren't the things you teach to someone who's doing these things already. You teach these things because they need to be heard and because Paul wants to be heard. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name and that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's there's the hope, ladies. Not you guys, ladies, but the ladies he's about to talk to in chapter 4, and everybody else reading it, including us. Your humility, your letting the infraction go, your mercy, your forgiveness, is not unnoticed by God. And in fact, in that humility is where he can work to raise you up above. It's in humility that you're brought high, that God can place you at the most respectful seat at the table. It's in pride that he has to ask people to move down to the other end. Humility has to come first, and then exaltation. And you don't do it for that reason, because he can spot that a mile away too. Okay, so the idea is to be holy and pious, I can do that, I can do that, I can get a big cross on my neck, and, and, and God bless you, my sister, you know, kind of thing. Now do I get exalted? No, that's not how it works. It has to be a true heart of humility. Now, he's going to give us the key here, because I know what everybody's thinking, okay, so I need to be humble, and I, I can't fake it, and I really want, you know, I know my goals, my motives. I can feel them inside of me, and yet I, I can't even start to be humble till I get rid of those motives and goals. And you start thinking all that stuff. Well, how do you, how do you get there? He's going to tell us. Thank goodness, right? I don't want to go any further before I cover the name, because that seems to be a hot topic in, in atheism and all that. Jesus, he wasn't, there wasn't even a name Jesus. Well, Jesus is the Greek word for Yeshua or Joshua, okay? That's the Hebrew version. And that version, Joshua, is a contraction of Jehoshua, which is another contraction. They like to contract a lot. Of Jehovah Shua, which means the Lord our Savior. And so we're just making a jump from Hebrew, the Lord our Savior, to Jesus in the Greek. It, it isn't that it didn't exist. It's that the New Testament was written in a time when we wrote in Greek, We didn't write in Hebrew. I mean, it was written in Greek. That was the language of the day. So Jesus is real and the right word. There was no J in Hebrew. Well, no, it was pronounced Yah, Yeshua. But that's not the point. And you need to know the history of that for those 
kind of ridiculous arguments that people bring up for not believing in God. I mean, they'll actually use this as the reason for not receiving forgiveness for their sins. Well, this will help you, I guess, if you need to tell them. No, it just means Jehovah Shua, the Lord our Savior. And in the Greek, that's Jesus, after a couple contractions. So that's all that is. Now, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's in Romans chapter 14, verse 11. Mick and I were just talking about, I think we've been quoting it wrong the whole time. It says, it says should, not, not, not will. Well, in Romans chapter 14, verse 11, Paul writes the same thing, but writes it in a way that that's how we quote it. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So that helps us out, but still something to think about. What does he mean by that? Well, you can voluntarily now, before Christ comes, by faith, confess Jesus as Lord and receive the forgiveness for your sins by believing by faith that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And you call him Lord now of your life. Not just Savior, not just someone I have in my back pocket, not just my baptismal card that says I can get into heaven. But you truly have made God Lord of your life. You've trusted in Jesus. He forgave me for my sins. Certainly he can run my life better than I have. So I'm going to do what he tells me to do from now. No longer am I going to live after my flesh and my own decisions and try to navigate my own way through this cesspool. I'm going to let Jesus rule and reign in my life, and I'm going to follow. He's Lord, okay? Now, when Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 and sets up as king, not as a lamb that was slain for the foundations of the world and and for the sins of the world, but as a lion... Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and it will not be voluntary at that time because he is who he is. Me believing he's Lord or not believing doesn't change who he is at all. If an atheist doesn't believe he's Lord of the universe, it doesn't not make him or doesn't make him not Lord of the universe. He is. He created it. Everything was made by him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And Paul's just saying, that's how exalted this Jesus is, who lowered himself for your sake. In Psalm 22, which is a prophetic psalm about the crucifixion, I try to say this as often as possible. We're getting close to Easter. If you read Genesis 22, Psalm 22, Luke 22, it's the same exact story throughout Scripture. Genesis 22, Psalm 22, Luke 22. And it says this in verse 29 of that prophetic psalm about the crucifixion of Jesus. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship the Lord. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. He's talking about dead or alive. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. It's prophetic. Verse 12. Back in chapter 2 of Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, since all these things are the case, that Jesus lowered himself and became a man but was exalted. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out uh, your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. There's our solution that we were hoping for. How can I humble myself? How did it? For it is God who works in you both to will, the will to do it, and to do it for his good pleasure. I can't, from my own sin nature, produce humility, but I can ask God to help me, and he will. In fact, in one portion of Scripture, it tells us that we, he grants repentance to us. How do I turn from my sin? How do I turn my back on my sin and walk towards you, God? I've tried so many times. Would you grant me repentance? That's a good prayer to pray. God, grant me repentance. I want this to be the last time I ever look at this sin again. I want to put my back to it so firmly, so resolute, that I never turn around again. Would you grant me that repentance? So he's telling them, I know you've obeyed. I know you want to obey. I he, he can just see this problem brewing in their church. I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That word work out doesn't mean work for. Don't confuse it. He's not talking about sweat equity in your salvation. You don't have any. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and it's complete in him. 
It's more of a workout like you go to the gym, if you want to look at it that way. I'm going to work out. I'm going to lift some heavy weights. I'm going to build some muscles, you know. I'm going to go for a walk and get my muscles pumping. I'm going to work out my body. You know the, the phrase, you don't use it, you lose it, right? So you got to use it. You want bone density? You got to pound on your bones a little bit and make them hard, you know. You want your faith to grow? You want it to be functioning and healthy and strong? You've got to exercise it. You got to use it. I want you to work out your salvation. You've been saved. You've been saved with a great salvation. You've been saved by a God who was fine without you in heaven, but came down because he loved you so much. Work out your salvation from that. How hard is it to forgive? How hard is it to lower yourself if it was that easy for him to do for you? And his was a much bigger jump. And that's the idea behind that. I love that verse 13, and I hope you all remember that tonight. It, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I want you to, to do this. And God wants us to do this. He's, he's not wondering if you can succeed or if you can turn your back on sin or if you can work out your salvation. He knows you can. He just wants you to do the... He wants, to do, he wants you to do what he's equipped you to do. You've been equipped. I just can't forgive that person. That's not true. God has fully given you the ability to forgive. He's given you the, all you have, everything that pertains to life and godliness is found in the knowledge of Jesus. You have everything you have need of. You can. You can. The only thing keeping us from doing these things is ourselves, pride. So I want you to do that. How do you work out your salvation? I, Josh from Blevins from um, Calvary down in uh, St. Joe Grace, Calvary, had a wonderful little um, bit today that I, I read, and he just says, you know, the ministry is messy. You're not in ministry. You know, Jesus' hands were dirty is what he started off with and, and said, uh, you know, if your hands aren't dirty, you haven't been touching the ministry very much because the ministry is messy. You, know, you haven't been washing feet. You haven't been healing sick. You haven't been, you haven't been in it. You know, you're too clean and shiny. That's working out your salvation. It's one thing to know it, to have your doctrine solid, which is very important, to have your head knowledge and your heart in the right place. But if it doesn't move our hands and feet towards other people to help them, what good is it? You know. And so he wants them to work. I want you to do this. Now, so, so because there's this controversy in the church between these two ladies, for you two to work out your salvation is to forgive one another. That's part of it. Because if you don't, you're going you're gonna to ruin what God is doing. It's, very, it's a very heavy subject. I want you to work this out. Please don't let pride be so entrenched. Don't dig in so far that you can't. Because that's what happens. The longer we wait, the longer time is between Okay, Every, anybody who's married here ever been quiet with one another in your house? I'm not going to look at anybody in the face. The longer that time lasts before you begin to talk to each other, the harder it is to start talking again. And if you're not married, that is marriage 101 right there. You've just been blessed. Own it. Put it in your back pocket. Talk, talk, talk. Even if it's dumb, that's how I start conversations. Jenny and I never have problems. Um, I'm, never, I'm never wrong. But my way of getting in her face is to, when she's doing dishes or something, to sneak up behind her and kind of grab her. Say, I love you. <laughs> I love you too. You know, I mean, she's very sweet about it. She's never had the problem. It was... It is always me, I know. It is. It's, it's always me. But to make that connection again is very, very important. And don't let time go. These two ladies, don't let any more time go to the point where now I'm in prison in Rome having to write a letter about it. It is a long time. The word has gotten around to me that you guys need some help. Fix it. Work out your own salvation. Philippians 1.6, our very first chapter, 
being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day um, of Jesus Christ. He is not only giving you the ability to do the works um, and the and the will to do the works. Please know that. He's also said, I'm going to finish that work that I've begun in you. And that's a promise. So he is active in your life. He may be convicting you tonight. And that's a good thing. We want that. Conviction of the Holy Spirit leading to, with a solution of repentance, is vital for every church. It's vital for every person here. Jesus did not die on the cross for us to be affirming of sin, ever. He came to die on the cross and to convict the world of sin, that they might repent. That's the point. Never to affirm it. And he wants to do that and is doing that and maybe stirring your heart tonight. So, I guess we take it. Verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. You may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as light in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. He throws that last part in there, would you do it for me, is basically what he's saying. He doesn't want him to do it for him, but he puts that in there saying, it's really, really important to me. I know you love me. I know you care for me. You, I, I know that because you sent this guy to me from your fellowship with this gift and has told me some of the problems in your church. And I'm writing this letter back to you and I'm going to send this letter back by this guy. I know you love me. And since you do, can I just add that to this? I know you're a light to the world, but you're also a light to me in this very dark place. Very encouraging to me as your pastor to see you functioning healthy and doing what God's called you to do. It helps me want to continue. It helps me to have hope in this place. Doing all things without complaining and disputing. (laughs) That's hard. It isn't. And it isn't because it's such, a, it's such a natural reflex for us, isn't it? Is anything good enough? Is anything right? Uh, since I've been four or five years old, able to comprehend adult speech and listen to conversations, every generation has said their generation was better than the next generation. Oh, these, these kids. And then the kids grow up and, oh, these kids. And every I'm waiting for that group of kids that aren't going to complain about the next group. To not wonder why things aren't like they used to be. This isn't food. You call this food? This isn't service. It's an awful lot of demanding going on out there for Christians to be so loud about. When we're called not to be loud about that at all. I deserve more. Do we? To think in ministry that you can be upset because you think you deserve more. There are two types of ministries or two types of people in, in, in Christianity. There are those who think they deserve more and there are those who think they deserve completely less. No business having the blessings that I have in my life. I have no business having any part in God's kingdom whatsoever. And then there's the others that are like, I can't believe I'm not. Whatever. Paul is ministering to both sides. But in a not so hidden way, do all things without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless. Now that's the key word. He, they are harming They don't think they are. They think they've been harmed. Because they're complaining and disputing about it, they're harming. They want to be harmless children of God without fault because the crooked and perverse generation is watching you shine. Paul says, don't forget who you are and what you're here to do. You're a light. You're light in a very dark world, and every time you complain and grumble and think you deserve more and can't humble yourself, you just get a lot more dim, and the world sees that. 
Hold fast the word. I can't emphasize that enough. Circle it, underline it. It is the first thing to go in a believer's life on their spiral back to where they came from, back to where God delivered them from. They begin to not hold fast the word of God. We're, on Sunday mornings, we're about you know, going through the Psalms. We're about ready to hit 119. Psalm 119 is beautiful. It's, it's got the entire Hebrew alphabet in it. Every letter has its section in Psalm 119. It's a really long chapter. Okay. And I'm going to read you the first three verses of the very first part of Psalm 119. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with a whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were uh, directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I looked or look into your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. You know how many different words he used for the word of God there? He calls them statutes, judgments, commandments, statutes again, commanded uh, in your ways, testimonies. The word, the word, the word, the word, the word, the word. You cannot get away from it. When you begin to dilute the word, water it down, remove pieces, none of that, you can't do any of things of the things in Psalm 119. The very next thing he talks about in the next section is how does a young man cleanse his ways by keeping the testimonies of God. And if you don't have the testimonies of God, you cannot cleanse your ways. Hold fast the word of life. He's telling the Philippians, this beautiful church that he loves so much, hold fast to it. Everybody is in danger of losing their grip on God's word. Everybody. It is so easy to run across a passage that you absolutely disagree with because it hurts too much to read. You were so sure of yourself until you read it, and you're like, oh my goodness, that's sin? I love that part of me. Don't let go of the word of God because you can't repent of it. That's why we read it, not to see if God's like us. We read the Bible as a mirror. It shows that this is what beauty is. This is what holiness is. This is perfection. And I look at it and say, yee you know, I need some makeup. Or better yet, you know, I need to wash my face. Not for us to critique the mirror. Stupid mirror. It'd be easier. I don't want to run in vain. Verse 17, yes, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. In other words, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. I don't know if this is my last letter to you. I don't know if I'm getting out of this prison or not. If I'm being poured out like a drink offering, if this is me sacrificing on the altar for your salvation, glad to do it. I'm rejoicing in it. I hope you can rejoice in it too. Verse 19, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. I don't think I'm going to die. I really think that Timothy is going to stay here with me until I get out. And when I get out, I'm going to send him to you. That I may also be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. That's a very difficult statement to understand from Paul who did nothing but minister and serve. Now, he's, th- th- there were people at the church th- that were fine and they were growing, but there's a difference when you're talking about a shepherd. I don't have any shepherds, is what he's getting at, to send to you that will take care of you and love you like I do. And, that, and I don't know that you can expect that. I don't think you can, because God called Paul to minister to the Philippians. He didn't call anybody else to do it. He's the guy. He's the one. And they went on and were fine after Paul died. They grew. They continued to have believers. We're here today in Maryville, Missouri. Something must have gone right over there, or we wouldn't be here, reading and doing what we're doing here right now. 
So Paul wasn't the last and only pastor. But what I wanted to notice, here, what I noticed here was that he, he doesn't he doesn't look for his own. Uh, he shouldn't be looking for his own successor. You know, who's gonna who's gonna care for you once I'm gone? Who's gonna do the things I do for you once I'm gone? It's really not Paul's responsibility. It's God's. When it came to Moses and Joshua, Numbers 27, 22 through 23, those are the verses. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and sent him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation. He laid hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. God picked Joshua. Moses didn't have to find his successor. Well, who's going to lead this group after I'm gone? I already got that worked out. God says, it's Joshua. Just go lay hands on him. All right. I like those kind of instructions. Elijah and Elisha, same thing. First Kings chapter 19, verse 16. Elijah's having a fainting fit. I think everybody's forgotten me. I'm the only one left. No, you're fine. He says this, also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. That's your last act as prophet. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Mehaloah, you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. God picked him. He's got it all worked out. Oh, I don't know how. Who's going to take care of my family when I'm gone? You never were. God did. God's got him. He still does. Same for churches and all that. He doesn't have anybody with him right now that he can send. He should have 20 guys that he could send out as ambassadors for him, but he's only got one, Timothy, sitting there at the prison with him. And why? They all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. They're all interested in their well-being, in their name, and their exaltation to the point where they're not even usable. They're not available anymore. But you know his proven character, Timothy, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. I'm sure this isn't the end. I don't know if it is the end, but I'm pretty sure it's not the end. Now, Epaphroditus, he is the guy that this church, the Philippians, sent to Paul with the gift to support him in the ministry. Oh, you're in prison. Paul needs some help. Send Epaphroditus. They love Paul. Now, Epaphroditus has had an issue. He got sick on the way there. Everybody in the Philippians, oh, I heard Epaphroditus was sick on the way there. Is he okay? Is everything going? Epaphroditus has been kind of telling Paul, they're all worried about me back there. I need to go home. You know, I don't mean to make fun of him, but it's, I know Paul from reading his letters, and when you read this, and if you know Paul, you can pick up on it. Yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger, but your messenger, and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. What did that conversation sound like? I don't mean to lie, but Paul, they're really worried about me. I think I should go home. I can see you're concerned. For indeed he was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Sure glad he didn't die. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Knowing, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ he came close to death not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. I just read that differently. Most people are like, isn't that nice of Epaphroditus to go to? And all I can see is Paul's like, really? I'm in prison about to be beheaded by the, the emperor here. And you can't stick around? Okay. And he's very merciful and very gracious. I mean, he was the best. Epaphroditus helped me out so much, he almost died when he was sick. He didn't, but he almost did. And he's receiving back because there's men like this that are just soldiers for the Lord, just building them up. And I'm tearing them down. I don't mean to, but I do. For me, when I read that, and, and that's, it's important for me, I don't want to be an Epaphroditus. I just don't. I want to serve God. 
I want to do what I'm called to do. I don't want to complain and grumble. I don't want to leave my mission. I don't want to leave my post. I don't want to walk away from what God's called me to do. It's just, it's very ingrained in me to be very steadfast and resolute in what he's called me. It doesn't cross my mind. I can't let it cross my mind. It's just the way I am, you know. And so I, pref- I appreciate this guy like Paul does, and I'll leave that alone as far as his reputation goes. But I want to be a Timothy who's sitting outside the very doors of Paul's cell waiting. Give me instructions. Timothy, go get some rest. I don't need rest. What do you need me to do? That's who I want to be. We need Timothys in this world. We need people that aren't going to bail like John Mark did on the missionary trip with Paul. I want to go home to my mom. And halfway through the trip, he heads home. Those things happen, and there's a maturity that needs to take place in people. But remember, that is not the goal to be an Epaphroditus or to be a John Mark. This world is going to, is hard to minister in. We need people that are Timothys. We need people that are uh, Silases, that are willing to go to the inner prison and join Paul in song. You know, We want to raise up those kind of people. I want all of my kids to be like that. I train them all up to be like that. Now, whether they are or not, that'll be up to them. We want to be like that. So he's sending Epaphroditus back is the bottom line with this letter to the Philippians. Um, and he's been the guy that's been their ambassador. And that's where we close tonight. Next week, we'll be in chapter three. You can read ahead. I don't think we can do chapter four also. We just better stick to three. So that's our homework assignment. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for Paul's gentle but not so subtle, um, moving this whole fellowship to humility, um, to, to, to make it easy for that chapter four he knows he has to write, to be the one to say it out loud that these things need to be straightened out, that's destroying this fellowship. And God, I pray for our own hearts. If there's anything in our hearts that you've shown us tonight that needs to change, that we wouldn't hesitate, talk ourselves out of it, or even explain it away, but that we just receive what your Holy Spirit shared with us and encouraged us tonight, convicted us of even, that we just be doers, that we do it. Trust in the outcome. Trusting that through that humility and through that reconciliation that things will get better. Burdens will be lifted. Christ will shine in our lives. That's what we want. So God bless these folks as they go tonight, as they travel home, as they chew on your word and kind of digest it all. I pray that your Holy Spirit would just really do a wonderful work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you.